Please open your Bibles with me this morning to uh, Ephesians. And so today we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, and it's a short section of Ephesians, uh, verse 14 through verse 19, as we uh, continue and press on in our sermon series on discipleship, which is one that we started a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's a part of a series that you see on the screen in front of you called God's Design for Discipleship. And what I am doing in this series, uh, especially for those of you who are new to, to our church, maybe it's your first time here, is I'm, I'm trying to establish biblical and theological sort of framework for our thinking about discipleship so that as we continue to, uh, to talk about what does it mean for us to, to, to make disciples and make disciples here at Old Cutler, and as our elders who will gather for a retreat next month and talk about this, uh, we really are all on the same page as we move forward with this. And so that's the purpose of the, the series. So this is the third of eight sermons that I'll be preaching on this topic. And the first two uh, came from the book of Matthew. And so we looked at Matthew 16, we looked at Matthew 28. Uh, the next three, meaning today and the next two Sundays, we're going to look at, um, at Ephesians. And we're going to look at uh, Ephesians chapter 3, this section of, of chapter 3, and look at most of chapter 4, uh, beginning next week and then the, the following week as we continue to talk about uh, what discipleship really is all about. So this morning we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through verse 19. And so please follow along as I read God's word. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And this is the word of our God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word. So when, when I think a pastor or in a church says, you know, we're going we're gonna to emphasize discipleship more, uh, I, I think it, uh, there's a tendency in our minds to think that, okay, what that, what that means is that we are going to sort of rethink programming, right? And so then if we're going to emphasize discipleship more, then we're going to think about, you know, Sunday school and Sunday school classes and Bible studies and, and, and Wednesday nights and conferences and women's studies and men's studies and children's ministry and youth ministry and all of those kinds of things. And, and that is partially right. I mean, part of what we're going to do when the elders go away is we're going to talk about those kinds of things. But I think if we, if we think that that's the only thing that is necessary when it comes to sort of emphasizing discipleship in the life of the church, I think what we can end up doing is we can have a lot of structure without much power. And, and that's not what we want. Uh, we need the structure, we need the program, and we know that. But we also need to go deeper than that when talking about discipleship. Now, I have entitled this particular sermon the core of discipleship. And the, the word core means the innermost part of, it means the center of, uh, it can mean the essential of. And so really what I'm, I'm trying to get at here today is, is to talk about the sort of the essential core of what discipleship is. Now, I'm not saying that by preaching this particular sermon, I've said everything that can be said about this. I've certainly not. Nor am, am I saying that, that there aren't other things to think about. In fact, if I were to ask you a question this morning, you know, what do you think the central core of discipleship is? I imagine we would get a number of different answers in response to that. And many of those answers, even though different than each other, would, would be right. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that I have given you the master answer. But I am saying 
that this is really, really, really important in terms of what I'm going to talk to you about today. And if we don't get this when it comes to discipleship, I don't think we're really getting discipleship. I don't know if we're having the right conversation. And so what is that? Well, what's interesting about the text that we're looking at today is, first, first of all, it's, it's, it's transitory nature or it's place, it's transitionary place in the text. And what I mean by that is that this particular passage is a, is a, is a hinge passage, if you will. It connects... The, the book of Ephesians. And now, if you, rem- if you remember Paul's writing style, Paul typically will, will write in these letters, he'll write the first half of the letter, and he does this in Ephesians, that talks about who we are in Christ and all that God has done by his grace. And then the second half will be the, the ethical instructions, right? The, 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 the mandates, the things that he's calling us to do, how he's calling us to live. And sometimes we'll, we'll talk about that being like Paul will give the indicative in the first part of the chapter or the book and the imperative in the second part of the book, right? He tells us what is and then he tells us what we're called to do, the commands in terms of what we're called to do. And that is true in the book of Ephesians. You see the Ephesians sort of divided up like that. What this particular text does is it serves as the the hinge between the two. In in other words, it connects the the first part of Ephesians dealing with the the, the whole idea of who we are in Christ and all that God has done for us to the rest of Ephesians. And we can see that very clearly if you just look at verses 14 and 15 again where he says, and notice the beginning, we're going to stop there as soon as I mention this, for this reason. Notice those words, for this reason. Those are connecting words. Those are linking words. Those are words that connect to what has preceded this. Now, we don't know for sure, but what he's talking about directly, it could just be chapter 3, it could be the whole. My sense of it is when he says, for this reason, he's thinking about everything that he has written up to this point. All the things that he has written to us about what God has done by his grace to save us, what God has done by his grace to make us one in Christ. And even in chapter 3 leading up to this part, what God has done in the, in the whole, what he describes here is the mystery of the gospel, the manifold wisdom of the gospel, where he brings people that are divided and apart and separate from one another, and he makes us one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul now, at this particular place in, in uh, Ephesians, begins by, after reflecting on that, saying, for this reason. For this reason what? And this is the key. I think this is one of the core things in discipleship. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Now, what is he doing? He's praying for the church. He's praying for the church. Now, think about it for a moment. He's transitioning from all the things that God has done to the things that now he's telling us that we are called to do. And what he does to transition is he prays for the church. Now, in a a sense, I may be saying something obvious to you and may may be saying something that seems a bit simplistic to you, But I am also saying something that is incredibly important to discipleship that we often miss, and that is how much we need to pray for each other to that end, to pray. Now, I will admit to you that this isn't like my first go-to. It's not, because I'm one of those guys that's all about the, you know, the structure and the mechanics of it and the putting it together and all this kind of stuff. I go on a study week and come back with pages of stuff of all the things that we're going to think about, and typically most of it is about programming. But I need to be reminded, and all of us need to be reminded, that if we're going to see this take hold in the life of old Cutler, we need to pray. We need to pray for the church. We need to pray for the leaders of the church. We need to pray for one another in the church. 
Right? I started the new member class this morning, and, and um, I talked about a healthy church member and what that means. And one of the things we're talking about is just that need for us to pray that God will work. And this is what Paul is doing here. What's interesting about it is just to give you a sense of the, the assurance and confidence he has in God. He goes on to say, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. The, the bowing the knees can be, you know, that idea of bowing knees. We can pass that by and not really give a lot of consideration to it until we realize that the, the standard form of first century Jewish prayer wasn't that. It actually was standing up. So Paul then is so moved by the reality of the gospel and all that he has said about the wonders of God's grace when the text tells us he bows the knee, it's, it's, a, it's an indication of, of being sort of overwhelmed by the wonders of God's grace and, and dropping to his knees and surrender and submission and, and, and I would imagine in need and recognizing how much we need him, but also knowing how much he is here for us. I mean, he he calls him Father, which is the language Jesus teaches us to pray with, our Father who art in heaven. It's that language of intimacy that we can turn to him, knowing that he is our Father, knowing that we are his children. And then he goes on to say, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's a, that's a bit confusing. Um, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. You know, back in the, in the 19th century, there was this aberrant theological belief in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all men. It, it was a, a belief that, you know, sort of God is over everybody and everybody's brothers. And it's a universalism is what it is. That's not what Paul's getting at. I think Paul's specifically talking about God's people. It, it could be that what he's referencing here is this, that he is the father over and is named. Some theologians will just talk about it as the church triumphant and the church militant in heaven and on earth. Church militant is it's this, it's good language, it's, uh, but it can be confusing. It's not... Church militant is not language of saying that we pick up swords and guns and start shooting people. It's, it's that we're in the battle. We're in the battle in this world. Church triumphant is that you're in glory. And what he's saying is the Father who loves us has named us all. He's named us all. So then if you consider this, then you have a book that deals with all that God has done for us and then what we're called to do, which really is what discipleship is, all that he's done and what we're called to do. And right in the middle of it, Paul drops to his knees, overwhelmed by the grace and the presence of God, and he cries out to God the Father in prayer. And he asks him, as we go on in this text, for two things that I believe are also core essentials to discipleship and those two things are these that God's power number one and God's love number two will take hold of our lives okay all programming all structure you got to have this and we need to be asking God for it that God's power and God's love will take hold of us. Now, we begin by looking at God's power. And this is what we see in verse 16, where Paul says, and notice he, it just goes on that. Here's what the prayer is. He bows down before the Father and he prays that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. 
he starts out by acknowledging something else important about God that we all need to know, that God is rich in glory, right? He's, he's not just a father to us so that there's, there's, there's access, there's love, there's intimacy, all those kind of things we can have with him, but he is rich in glory. In our prayers, we don't turn to a, a God who is deficient in resources. We don't turn to a God that is a pauper. We don't turn to a God that has no ability or strength. We turn to the God who is rich in glory. And note what, what Paul goes on to do. He prays this specific prayer that I, I, it needs to be our prayer for us. It needs to be that he would, he would grant us to be, and notice the language, strengthened with power through his spirit. So this is, this is the working of God's power, God's spirit to strengthen us in, he says, your inner being. In your inner being. Which is, he uses the word in just a second of heart. It's the, the inner self. It is the, the, the core really of who we are. He, he's saying, God, by your power, strengthen them in the inner self. Now, one of the things that's interesting about the, the scriptures in relationship to this language of inner self and so forth is there's, there's, sometimes Paul will talk about the inner self or the inner being, and he'll talk about the outer self or the outer being. And he'll draw out that distinction. A place that he does that very clearly is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And, and 2 Corinthians 4 in verse 16 is an interesting verse, but it begins, it's a passage that I think most of you know well. It's the treasures in jars of clay passage. You remember that? And the treasure is the gospel. The jars of clay are us. <laughs> And remember, the jars of clay are, 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 are broken, or not, not, well, they can be broken, but they're, they're fragile, easily broken, cheap jars. It's, it's sort of this description of our weakness, right? The treasure is the gospel. We are incredibly weak in and of ourselves. And the way he begins that treasures and jars of clay text is he talks about the things that are happening to him. The afflictions and the persecutions and the difficulties and all these kind of things that he's facing but then he says this in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, don't, don't misunderstand this because it, it can kind of communicate if we're not careful with it. it. It's something that I think is a tragic problem in the culture we live in today, which is a, a dismissal of the body and its worth and value. It's not what this is doing. When it talks about the body wasting away, it's not that. It's not that God doesn't value our physical bodies. It's not that God isn't here to meet our physical needs. It's not that God isn't concerned about our pain and suffering and that we can't pray to God. We can pray to God for our physical needs. God has given us the wondrous gift of, of medical science to help us in all of our physical needs. All of those things are true. And one day we will be in glorified, resurrected bodies for all eternity. Hallelujah for that. But what this is acknowledging is something that Scripture says very clearly and that you know experientially. And unless you're so young, you just haven't gotten to that place, you realize it, you be wasting. And so do I. 
this outer self is wasting. And it's wasting from age, sickness, persecution, which is what Paul was talking about in the context of this text, and eventually death. And all of us are on that path. But what he says is this, even though that may be happening with all of us, God is at work daily, day in and day out, renewing us in the inner self. You see that? Now, if you take that idea and then you turn back to the Ephesians 3 passage, you begin to see what, what is what's Paul doing? He's praying, he's praying to God, the God who is our Father, the God of all power, the riches and glory. He's praying that God by his spirit would, would, would strengthen us in the inner being. Right? And he tells us to what end? This is verse 17 where he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So he's praying to God to strengthen us in our inner being, to renew us in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, I think we can, we can also we can get a little bit confused about what this means because we can look at it and go, okay, so he's saying that Christ is to dwell in us and the Holy Spirit is to dwell in us because we, we probably, most of you who are believers and been believers for any time, you'll understand a basic doctrine of the Christian life. That when you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you, right? I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. He's not saying the Spirit dwells you, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and then Christ indwells you something separate. It's, you remember the unity of the Trinity. That when we talk about the Spirit of God indwelling us, you can say the Holy Spirit indwells you. You can say the Spirit of God indwells you, and you can say the Spirit of Christ indwells you, okay? He's talking about Christ indwelling us by the Spirit. But then that leads to a second way of misunderstanding this or a second question we may have in relationship to this, and that is why do we have to pray for that? If you, if you believe in Jesus... And God graciously gives you his spirit. His spirit indwells you. Then why pray for it? I don't know if you are familiar with the name Charles Hodge. He's a, he was a 19th century, one of the great Princeton seminary theologians. And Charles Hodge, he, he explained it this way. And I think this is, this is helpful if you can put it up on the screen. The indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about the indwelling of Christ. We can have greater and greater and greater experience of it. Okay? And that gets back to, honestly, the word that's being used here. Notice he says that we pray that Christ dwells. As a, there's a couple of words that are used in the Greek for, for dwelling. And one of those words is, is a word that speaks of sort of a temporary dwelling, right? A, a kind of thing. Like, for instance, I, I can explain it kind of like this. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever rented an Airbnb house, right? Well, if you rent an Airbnb house, you can rent it for a period of time, and you go to that particular house, and you're actually residing in a house, and it's a house. It's not a hotel room. It's a house, right? And you're residing in that house. 
But the last thing you would ever do is go, well, I don't think I like all these pictures. I'm going to take them all down, put up other pictures. I don't like where the furniture is, so I'm going to move it all over. I'm going to pick out all their, their, their flowers in their yard and put new flowers in. I'm going to do all, and that would make no sense. Why? Because it ain't yours, right? The word that's used here for dwelling, in Christ, that the word to dwell in us, Christ dwelling in us, is a word for permanent residency. And it's a word for Christ taking a life. And think about it like this. When we become believers in Jesus, the spirit of Christ indwells us. And this thing is a mess. Yes? You know it is. Don't lie. You know it is. It's, it's orientation. It's thinking. It's all that stuff. It's just all over the place. And what Jesus, the spirit, of, the spirit of Christ does when he takes a hold of us is he begins to clean stuff up. And this is what Paul's praying about. That God by his spirit would work in us to strengthen us so that we would see Jesus throw some things out, reorder some things, clean up some rooms, take ownership of the whole thing so that he becomes the everything of us. He becomes our identity. He becomes our all. And there is no discipleship without Christ doing that in us. Now, I think this is important to hear because we have to understand what really counters sin. So let's, let's think about that for just a moment. Let's, let's, okay, so, so when, when, when we, which we all have done, rejected God. In rejecting God, we have rejected his, his authority. We've rejected him. We've rejected all that he is. We've rejected his rule over us. We've rejected everything about him. And so when you reject God, who is your creator, he made you, but you reject him then that rejection is going to create a void. And that void is quick to be filled. And it is quick to be filled by what I would call the exalted, autonomous self. Right? The exalted, autonomous self. Reject God, you stand in his place. That's why Augustine talks about sin being man turned in on himself, away from him to self, okay? So that then explains, I mean, you think about the world we live in and all the things we see in the history of the world, not just recently, but the history of the world and its self-centeredness, its selfishness, its greed, its pursuit of power. It's all these kinds of things, a result of that. It's, it's, it's people exalting self. But it also, I think, is a part of the explanation for so many of our current spiritual pathologies. It comes from the same place. It comes from rejecting the authority of God, right? And what we are experiencing today is just one of the reasons why you're seeing some of the unique things you see today. And I'm going to explain that for you real quickly. It, there, there, it's all been from the, from the beginning, from the fall, it's all been about rejecting God and God's authority. 
But what's happened recently is that the rejection of that authority has included the rejection of the structures that were established by that authority. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so all of the, the sort of societal the structures that you would have kind of grown up with if you have any age on you and you've seen those things, all of those kinds of things, they're being torn down, torn down, torn down. And they're not only being torn down, they're being viewed as oppressive. Okay. And therefore, if you deny God and his authority and you deny all the underlying authorities that kind of have been established you deny all of those things then again it comes back to not only the exalted autonomous self but ultimately it comes back to this is what I feel is right it's what I feel This explains why we have conversations and realities and things that are happening that seem to some of us and to me so unbelievable what they're happening. It's why we have the conversations about issues of life the way we do. A baby in the womb is alive. It's a life. But we actually have conversations as if that doesn't even exist. It doesn't even matter because of what I feel about my rights. It is the reason why we are having the conversations and seeing the reality of of sexual expression in the ways we are. And when I talk about sexual expression, I am not just simply talking about sexual orientation. I'm not just talking about what's happening. Yes, of course, it's right there in homosexuality and all of that same-sex relationship. It's all, I feel this way, therefore, it is what's happening in heterosexual relationships. It's what's happening all over the church. Because this is what I feel is right. It is why we are having an absurd conversation about something that I just, about gender, where I can be whatever I am and feel like being, no matter what that is. Hear me. God will judge this. But you need to hear the good news. Jesus is here to redeem us from this. And here's the thing that we need to understand about this rescue of Jesus. It's it's not just that he will, if we just turn to him with it, and we we just surrender it to him, that he will, will give us, he's given his life for it so that we can be forgiven by God, which is all true. It's all the gospel. But the rescue is about more than that. And that's what this text is about. The rescue is not just about Jesus going to a cross to save us from this. It is about Jesus coming into us to save us from this. Jesus taking us, reorienting us, So that God and God's will matter. Hallelujah. We are not alone to fix this stuff. 
Hallelujah, you're not alone to fix this stuff. You may not, I don't know where you are. You may not struggle with issues of orientation or issues of gender and trying to figure all that stuff out. You may not, but I will tell you something. You struggle with something that you cannot control. All of us do. That's what sin does. It warps and corrupts and harms and brutalizes and Jesus alone is the answer. Hallelujah for the gospel. We need to be praying for God's power. But then that leads to a second thing that we see here. We also need to be praying for God's love. God's love. You know, at the beginning, I, I said to you that we have to, be, we have to be careful that when we think of what discipleship and the emphasis of discipleship is, it's, it's not just about programming. I think another mistake that we can make when it comes to discipleship is to think that the, when we talk about an emphasis on discipleship, that's just about being, being more committed or about like the dis, being more disciplined, right? And it's not that commitment and disciplines don't matter. And, and I am actually an advocate of the spiritual disciplines and how God works through the spiritual disciplines to grow us and, and pour his grace out into our lives. But with, with just that, it can become, if we're not careful, it's another way that we are thinking we can will ourselves to sanctification, right? We can do it ourselves. We can make ourselves right before God, but we can't. And, and I can prove this to you just by simply talking to us about any, you know, like sin that really has your life. I mean, how many of us have, have been guilty of uh, and, and, and this whole thing of like, I, I struggle with this particular sin, and we, got, we know it's sin, we know it's wrong, and we just keep trying harder and harder and harder to make it go away, right? And it may stop, whatever the sin is, we may be controlling it for a while or a time or whatever, and then you sort of circle back around to it. Why is that? Well, because I'm going to say something that may be hard to hear, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to hurt you, I'm just sort of expressing something that I think is, is true from the scriptures. I think it's, it's because when it all does come down to it, what's happening is we're loving that thing more than we're loving God. Because what sin is, is, is about, it, it, it really is about our desires. We're desiring this. This is, this is why this, the Scottish minister, Thomas Chalmers, he talked about what we really need he puts it this way, the expulsive power of a new affection. New affections. And I believe what Paul is doing in this passage, in this prayer to God, is he's praying to that end, that we would have these new affections. And the new affections would come from what? From knowing God's glorious, wondrous affections for us. And so what does he do? He continues the prayer. This is in verse 17, second part, down through verse 19, where he says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, he's borrowing language from the, the world of agriculture and the world of, of architecture, rooted deep, 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 rooted down. Grounded is, is probably foundation language and being, so that we can be founded on something solid to be built up in love. 
And then he says, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. He wants this for all of us. All of us. Every Christian that has ever existed. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, it's so interesting here because what he's praying for is we would have strength to comprehend. And then he goes on and he says a little bit later, verse 19 again, that it surpasses knowledge. So what Paul is actually praying is this. It's almost paradoxical if you think about it. He's praying that we would have strength to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. That's what he's saying. And he's not saying that we can't sort of mentally think about it. He's just saying God's love towards us in Christ is so grand and so magnificent and so wondrous that it's beyond our just natural human abilities to even begin to grasp it. So he's praying to God, give them strength. And this is why he uses these dimensions. And when he talks about it, he says that to, 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 to strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love. Oh, that we would know that and know it more. Of the wonder of this, this, this agape, sacrificial pursuit of us for our good. This love. Dale Tackett, some of you know that name because he does the Truth Project. I'm reviewing a curriculum right now called the, the Engagement Project. And he talks about how love is, and I was so happy when I heard him say this, love is the crown jewel of God's character. He loves us more than we could ever think or imagine. Now, if you notice the text, Paul goes on and he talks about how knowing that love, it leads to this, that you, this is the last part of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So he's praying to a particular end that we would be filled to the fullness of God. Now, we know God is love. John tells us that. It's clear in Scripture. But we also know God is more than just that. I mean, his character is rich and full and immense and awesome in every kind of way. And Paul is saying that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And, but what he's saying is this, that we would know the love of God that would lead us to understanding and being filled with the fullness of God. Now, why in the world does that work? Because here's the thing we have to understand. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there are constant pulls all the time in this world for your hearts and for your affections. And it is continuous. The way we battle it isn't simply going, I'm not going to love that thing. The way we battle it is by knowing that there is a greater love. And as we experience that greater love, the love of who God really is towards us in Christ, then it begins to change our affections so that we become closer and closer and closer to God, which I would pray that all of us would want and be praying for.
And so this gets back to, and I'm going to end here. I know it's a Dolphins game today. I, I get these, these reminders, Dolphins season is coming up, and you need to tighten it up and all this other stuff, speaking against the Holy Spirit of God and all that stuff you godless people are doing. <laughs> I'm going to end with this. I'm going to end with this. Um, there's, a, there's a rhyme to what I'm, what I'm doing here. Um, and, and part of the reason there is a rhyme and rhythm to this is because I, I, this, this, the way the Spirit is at work in the church, leading us to this conversation about discipleship, is really, really dear to me and very important. And I am incredibly thankful for it. But, but I don't want us to make the mistake of just going the same route that everybody does. All right, we're going to talk about discipleship for a little while and have a few more programs, and then we're going to be all about our business. I want this to be something where God really is beginning to affect us, right? And so not only am I preaching to this end, but on, on, um, on Wednesday nights, which I've invited you to, all to, and we've had a great crowd last couple of weeks. We really started in the curriculum last week, a study on Philippians 1 called Discipleship explored. I really want to encourage you to come to it. The subtitle for this curriculum, and this is part of why I chose it, the subtitle is this. What is the greatest love you've ever known? What is that? Because answering that correctly is key to discipleship. Unless you can say in your heart of hearts, I've been immersed in the story, the greatest love story ever told. And I'm a part of that. You are not truly going to pursue God and follow Jesus as you really can and should. And so my brothers and sisters in Christ, let's pray for the power of God and the love of God. Father, bless us, help us, strengthen and empower us, Lord. May we know the indwelling of Christ in our lives. May we know the love of God for our good. Would you please work, we ask, in his name. Amen. Let's stand together.